Thank you so much. I also am short. <laughs> Only in stature, not in breath, unfortunately. <sighs> My name is Ellen, and I am an enthusiastic member of Al-Anon. I know that's hard to take early in the morning. <laughs> but there you are. <laughs> this is the price of recovery. I am so delighted to be here. Al-Anon was not something I wanted to be when I grew up. It was not on the top of my uh, wish list, you know. I never heard the word alcoholism until I came to Al-Anon. doesn't mean that it wasn't said to me, because part of my disease is a thing called selective hearing. I just hear what I want to hear, which may be what you said, and it may not be what you said. I make stuff up. That's what I do. That I, have a, I have a disease of storytelling. When I can't deal with what's going on out here, it isn't the way I think it ought to be, I just make up stories in my head, and I believe those. It's a lovely way to live if you'd like to live alone. <laughs> it doesn't work well in relationships, however. Um, I didn't hear the word alcoholism, and I sure didn't hear anything about Al-Anon until I was dragged here, literally dragged here. Uh, and when I got to Al-Anon, I didn't want to be here. I didn't think it was a particularly attractive place to be because the uh, people who described to me where I would find the room said, well, you have to go through the big room to get to the little room. And you'll know when you're in the Al-Anon room, because the tables don't exactly match, you know. The AAs didn't want those anymore, and they gave them to the Al-Anon. And you'll recognize the people there, little blue-haired, purse-lipped women in there who never laugh. And they all wear sensible shoes. <laughs> oh, yeah, I want to join those folks. <laughs> I can hardly wait. <laughs> feel a lot better, you know. <sighs> we talk about coming into uh, our program with low self-esteem. I came into Al-Anon self-destructive, which is a little bit below low self-esteem. I, I got to low self-esteem, it was a sign of recovery, you know. At least then I had somebody to feel bad about. <laughs> so it wouldn't have mattered much what you said to me. The fact is I was going to feel crummy. I felt crummy. And whatever you said to me, I just turned into making myself feel crummier. Um, what I wanted to be was alcoholic for all the reasons John told you last night I really thought alcoholic women had a much better deal of it than Al-Anon women um, well obviously the Al-Anon men preferred them that's why they were in our room you know my husband seemed to prefer them you know um, And um, what I tried to do was change, change my outsides so that I would look alcoholic. God knows I didn't want to drink. That looks like that would take a long time for one thing. And um, some, some alcoholic women didn't look all that good by the time they got through that. But there was a, you know, it's like drinking. There was that certain look. I thought if I could get that certain look, then I'll feel a lot better, you know. So I did uh, address myself like the AA women in my area do thinking that was going to do it. Now, I have to preface that real quick by saying AA women saved my life. When I got into the deepest, darkest, lowest parts of my life, which happened, have happened since I've been in the program, the AA women were the women I didn't have to explain the pit to. They understood the pit. Al-Anons are blessed or cursed, depending on how you look at it, with being able to come in to our program with what we call, <laughs> you should pardon the term, high bottoms. <laughs> I think that's very descriptive. I always see, you know, I think about those cartoon dogs, you know, when someone comes along behind them and kicks them <laughs> and their fannies go away from there. Yeah, 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 that's how we look. Um, 
They're the women that if you say, how are you today? She says, he's sober and we're fine, thank you. And that's, and that's the truth. You know, he got sober and her life got better. But I'll tell you something. When the alcoholics in my life either sobered up or left, <laughs> most of them left, <laughs> um, my life did not get better. My life got worse because I was left with nobody to blame for the way my life was but me. Um, but I didn't have to explain the pit. I didn't have to explain the difference between giving up and surrendering to AA women. So I prefaced this next line with that. What I did was I dressed myself in skin-tight jeans and, and stiletto pumps. That's what the AA women looked like to me. <laughs> I discovered a number of amazing things. <laughs> I don't like clothes. I don't like anything that controls me that much. <laughs> no, don't like that. <laughs> And I also know that Al-Anons are doomed to sensible shoes. If you have chosen your footwear today for comfort more than for look, welcome to Al-Anon. <laughs> I truly think if you, if you scratch any alcoholic worth his salt, you'll find an alligator underneath. <clears throat> See, I think if you're an Al-Anon, what an Al-Anon is, is um, it's not somebody who is in love with or the sister of or the mother of or the daughter or the brother or whatever of somebody who's drinking is a problem. Jeez, you know, I, I think the doctor that delivered me probably was an alcoholic. I don't, I think, I think, I don't believe that until I got to this program and probably maybe not till today that I have ever loved anyone who had, who had not drawn some um, drunken Brits, you know. My sponsor told me early on, she said, you, you cannot go around anymore pronouncing people alcoholic, although I'm really good at it. <laughs> I think it's one of my better talents, actually. <laughs> There's a couple of telltale signs. Number one is if I love you. <laughs> I have to give away right there, you know. <laughs> Matter of fact, a girlfriend of mine in the program and I, a couple of years back, we decided we were going to make a little money. And so what we were going to do is we were going to start a business called Drunk Busters. And if you wanted to date somebody, but you weren't sure, you know, you weren't sure if maybe he might not have a small problem for um, a fee, we would go out with him. <laughs> and if we came back in love, <laughs> you could make book on it, you know. <laughs> my sponsor said, though, that I had gone around my whole life letting other people tell me what reality was and believe in them. And she said, part of this process is you have to decide what reality is for you, distorted though it may be. You need to decide what it is for you. And she said, if they walk like a duck and they swim like a duck and they quack like a duck, honey, you can call them a duck. You can't call them an alcoholic, but you can call them a duck. Well, the thing is, I believe I've been walking around in lake water about to hear most of my life. And if I don't hear quacking, I go looking for it. You know, it's too quiet if it's not quacking. I think I may be part duck myself, but I believe the difference is I don't quack. I keep, I'm the kind of duck that sticks my head under the water. I don't want to know what's going on out there, you know. I just don't want to know. I'm too busy watching all the other ducks paddle. I want to judge how they're paddling is what I want to do. If you can picture that in your mind, you will notice that the one part of me that isn't under the water is my fanny, <laughs> which explains a lot of the things I did. Um, <laughs> I am not an Al-Anon because, uh, because there are people in my family whose drinking bothers me. 
you know, the requirement for membership in Al-Anon is that there be a problem of alcoholism in a, in a relative or friend. It doesn't say that they say there's a problem of alcoholism. Now, I think there's a problem. And, um, and what I think and what is true may be two entirely different things. I know that today. The people in my family have not made me an Al-Anon. Um, the several gentlemen I've been married to who quack, 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 they didn't make me an Al-Anon. The man that I worked for for 13 years who quacked in his office, he didn't make me an Al-Anon. Uh, I am an Al-Anon because I have a program of, a 12-step program of recovery that I practice like my life depends on it because I know today that my life depends on it. It is a matter of life and death for me. I have a sponsor who knows everything there is to know about me, and she knows more because she loves me for stuff I haven't even done yet, you know. I have a committed meeting that I go to every week like a doctor's appointment because it is a doctor's appointment for me. When I don't show up, they miss me. If I show up and they say, how are you, and I say, fine, they say, sit down. <laughs> I want to talk to you. Fine is not acceptable at my committed meeting. I had a guy at my meeting one time who said, I'm either fine or in denial. I'm not sure which. <laughs> oh, go ahead. Take fine. It's okay. <laughs> That's what makes me an Al-Anon. Al-Anon is a program for people who want it. It is not a program for people who need it. And that took me years to figure out. Because I think there are a lot of people who need Al-Anon. I think those people are alligators. Now, I think you've probably met them. There may, may be some of you here. Um, and welcome. If you can listen for the ways we're alike rather than the ways we're different, it will help a good deal. I spent a lot of my time listening to speakers trying to figure out the yeah buts. You know, yeah, but, yeah, but I'm not exactly like that. Yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. Um, listen for the ways we're alike. Um, I'm an Al-Anon, and I'm glad I'm an Al-Anon today. I'm glad about a lot of things. I uh, am the child of a family of today nine children. There were ten children at one point. My older stepbrother was killed 22 years ago when he drove his little tiny car up under a tractor trailer. My, my father said the smell of alcohol in the, uh, in the emergency room was so great that he couldn't go in there. But they did not call that alcoholism. My other stepbrother said the only part of Toby that he recognized was his feet, and he died the next morning. He left a wife with a little tiny girl and pregnant with another one. And um, that wasn't alcoholic, but there's been a lot of those kind of coincidences you know, in my family. I come from a family of heavy drinkers. We don't trust people who don't drink. This is not ever spoken. It's just the feeling you get, you know. They're not to be trusted. They could be fanatics, maybe even Baptists. Stand back. It could be viral, you know. We might catch it. <laughs> When I was 17, it was time to go away to college, and my mama wanted to send me someplace where she thought I'd be safe. My mama thought I was boy crazy. That was what she called my disease. I know today that's not true. I have an addiction. I have an addiction to mind-altering men. The women are laughing. They know who you are. <laughs> 
And some of you know who you are, too. <laughs> and my favorite story about that is, is when I was married to uh, uh, my husband. Now, I want you to keep these separate, please. The first one is called the children's father. <laughs> I have washed my hands of him entirely. <laughs> I've given him completely to the children. <laughs> the second one I will refer to as my ex-husband. <laughs> when I was married to my ex-husband, um, absolutely adored him. Just adored him. He was just everything on the list. You know, I had a list, and he was everything on that list. I just couldn't believe my good luck. And it took a lot of uh, uh, conversation to convince him how lucky he was. <laughs> but he finally saw the light. Um, we were married. We'd been married about a year, and it had been absolute heaven for a year. And then the night came when he didn't come home for dinner, you know. He didn't come home. And I, I lay on the floor of the bathroom and I cried because I was sure he'd seen the two pounds I'd gained and that's why he didn't love me anymore and that's why he wasn't coming home. Then I got up and went in the living room and I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. Then I realized the problem was that I had fixed uh, roast beef for dinner. And it really wasn't that I'd fixed the roast beef, it was that I told him I had fixed roast beef for dinner. He loves pork chops. I decided from then on I would always tell him in the morning it was pork chops for dinner no matter what I was serving because then he'd come home, you know. And then I decided... Um, well, I don't know about your thinking, but I, I will tell you about my thinking. And there's a girl in my, my uh, home group who says that obsession isn't, an obsessive thought isn't true obsession until you take it to the grave, until you think it all the way till somebody dies, you know? Well, I, man, I'm champ at that, and I can do it in about 30 seconds, you know? And that's what I did. I stood at the window. <laughs> you've ever been to Dallas, Texas, but we lived at the corner of Midway and LBJ Freeway, which is a fairly busy intersection. I would guesstimate that maybe a million cars every hour go by there, but this is not a problem. <laughs> you know, I can keep up with that. You think alcoholics are busy, John. You just don't know, hon. You guys haven't had the training we've had. I had some OJT for busy here, you know, watching those cars go by. thinking, oh God, <laughs> you know, I started thinking, oh, what's happened? <laughs> he's out somewhere in the middle of nowhere. I don't know how he got there, it doesn't matter. He's out where he is. And there's no one else around. <laughs> and this guy is just blown up all by himself. Nothing's there. He's in the middle of He's thrown in the ditch. He's bleeding and he's dying and he's not quite dead yet. <laughs> Suffering and he's calling me. Of course he's calling me. Oh, and he's going, I love you. You know, with his dying breath. And now, and now it's worse. Wild animals are carrying body parts off into the woods. And we'll never know what happened to him. And it'll be seven years before I can get the insurance. <laughs> have little tiny windows of clarity. <laughs> little tiny windows. You've got to jump in there real quick because they snap shut, you know. Well, uh, of course, that's, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to take it to the worst, the absolute worst, and then I'm going to make it worse. 
I have another friend in my program who calls that awfulizing. So, of course, about that time, here he comes to the door. Of course he came home. <laughs> they always come home. <laughs> Why is it I think they're not going to come home? They come home. There he was, and there I stood, <laughs> you know, red and swollen, and God love them. I'm surprised they come home, and I don't blame them for getting drunk, you know, if that's how they're going to look when you get there. Um, and he looked at me, and he said, geez, Ellen, what is the matter with you? <laughs> and then he said that line, I just, I grew to just hate to hear. Well, if anything ever happens to me, you'll be the first one to know. <laughs> Thanks, I feel a lot better now. <laughs> oh, good. He said, geez, Ellen, you knew where I was. And that's true. You know, I knew where he was. But I have a disease that can allow two opposing thoughts to stay in my head and never touch. It's called denial. One thought is, he's at the trap room drinking. Of course he's at the trap room drinking. He's always at the trap room drinking. He just didn't do it this long, usually. And the other thought is, but he loves me more than anyone in this world. And the one I had to hold on to because my life depended on it was he loves me more than anything in this world. And if he loves me that much, why would he be in the trap room drinking? He'd be home with me. I cannot allow myself to think he's in the trap room drinking because I don't have any way to deal with that. I have no way to deal with that. My life hangs on his being there. What a price to put on somebody, you know? He said, God, Ellen, if you'd have wanted me home, all you had to do was pick up the phone and call me. You are insane. I don't know why I put up with this kind of behavior. And you know what I said? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> now, what is the matter with this picture? This fool is three hours late and drunk, and I'm apologizing. You know, you can spot a new alcoholic when he comes in, and not necessarily by looking at him, but you watch who's following him. You know? <laughs> She's got the twitch, you know, and, and the and sort of glazed over look, like, well, whatever he says. You walk away from those conversations. You know, you went into that conversation so sure you knew what the truth was, you know? And you walk away from it going, oh, maybe it was me. I'm not sure. It must be me. I must be crazy. <laughs> They say that um, psychotics are people who believe that two and two is five, and that neurotics are people who know that two and two is four, but it ticks them off. Well, it didn't tick me off. It just made me real sad. Mm -hmm. It's hurt. I just hurt. I really hurt. That was the one feeling I had when I came into Al-Anon was <laughs> hurt. <laughs> well, anyway. Mama sent me away to some place where she thought I'd be safe. You thought I forgot where I was. <laughs> See, Alanons have this incredible ability <laughs> to keep about six things going in their head at once. Well, you have to. You know, you have to. You have to know what's going on. If you work, you've got to know what's going on in the office, but you can't lose trail of him, you know, while you're working. Or the kids. You know, you got to, and we can keep, it's like plates in the air. And we can do that until these heads just blow wide apart. Mama sent me someplace where she thought I'd be safe, and that was Lubbock, Texas. <laughs> well, <laughs> wrong. Um, I can find alcoholics, you know, in a dark room. There could be two of us and um, 999 normies, if there is such a thing, and we'd find each other. And I don't know who's the moth and who's the flame, but I think people who don't drink are dull and boring. And I don't, there's nothing there for me. 
you know, I, I don't I don't care to be around them much. I mean, there's not a lot of entertainment there. <laughs> um, I found him in, in uh, Lubbock, Texas. Of course I did. I found him. Have you ever looked for him? And you just know if you could find him, then it would be okay. Well, I found him. Now, he was married and 60 pounds overweight and had two children, but none of that seemed insurmountable to me. What's the point if there's no, nothing to fight for, you know? Well, suffice it to say that a year later he had lost the 60 pounds and the wife and the two kids. And I had my trophy. I had him. Six months later, uh, we got married. Six months later, he hit me for the first time. And I want you to know that I didn't grow up in a family of physical abuse. I never saw adults hit adults. And I had, I can't blame anybody for my reaction to that. Now, I had brothers. I had a lot of brothers, and we picked on each other a lot. But I can't blame my brothers for my reaction either. I think that if an earth woman got hit, she'd probably have one or two responses, and these are just guesses on my part. But I suspect that if an earth woman got hit, she'd do one of two things. She would either go, well, I can see that you're very upset. I'm going to leave until you calm down, and we'll talk about it later. And out she'd go, or else she'd go, see ya, I don't need this kind of treatment, I'm out of here. I didn't do either one of those things. When he hit me, my immediate reaction was to take this precious little face and stick it right back up there and go, oh yeah. And I discovered an amazing thing. It doesn't take any more insanity for somebody to hit you the second time than it did the first time. I can't blame him for that second one. I can't blame him for that. I double-dog dared him to do that. And I think for a while in that relationship, I absolutely volunteered for that kind of abuse. And then slowly but surely, with every time that that happened, I gave a little more of myself and a little more of myself and a little more of myself away until there was nobody left here. There was nobody left here to defend. There was nobody left here to stand up for herself. There was power left in him. I had given every bit of it away. If you've been there, I don't have to explain it to you. If you haven't been there, I can't explain it to you. I stayed in that marriage nine and a half years. That's insanity. That is insanity. When I got to Al-Anon, I realized what I had done. I, I would never have dreamt that that man was an alcoholic. And I can't pronounce him alcoholic today, but I'll tell you, my behavior tells me he probably was. Because you know what I did? I quit drinking the last two years we were married. You know why I did that? I thought if I quit drinking, he'd quit drinking. And if he quit drinking, he'd quit hitting me. Because that's when he hit me. And that was my attempt to control his behavior. The primary Al-Anon illusion is when you're okay, I'll be okay. And I have to manipulate you and control you and make you okay in my eyes. That's the tricky part. That's the tricky part. Al-Anons look, and alligators, look so uh, loving and thoughtful and kind on the outside. We're always doing for other people. We will cook for you. We will take care of your children. We will take you to the other side of town if you want to go. We'll take you to the other side of town if you don't want to go. If we decide you should be there, we'll take you. We'll talk to you in the middle of the night and say, oh, no, you didn't bother me at all. And I'm always up at 3.30. What do you need? <laughs> you know. We look so loving and kind of remember everybody's birthday and everybody's anniversary. And Oh, please, go ahead. Have one more. It won't hurt you. We are so loving and kind. We are the most self-centered people on the planet. 
Because in the depth of our disease, we are not doing that for you. We're doing that for us. We're doing that because we've got to make you okay. If you're okay, then you'll understand and then you'll love me. Uh, my mom, a couple of years ago, I'd had some surgery. And, and the hardest person, you know, in the depth of my Al-Anon disease, I cannot tell where I stop and you start. My best asset and my worst defect is this ability to erase the lines between us. In the depth of my disease and in the heights of my recovery, I don't just guess at how I think you feel. I know exactly what you're feeling because I can get right inside you and feel it, which is a gift. That's a gift from God to be able to be that close to other human beings. Intimacy is coming together as one like that. And then being able to come back apart into two holes. W-H-O-L-E-S is holes. Not H-O-L-E-S is black holes that suck up everything that comes around them, you know. In the depths of my disease, I cannot distinguish between your feelings and my feelings. And I take yours on. And I try to give you mine. In the depth of my disease, I don't want to be responsible for myself. I don't want to be responsible for how I feel. I don't want to be responsible for how I behave. I want to make it your fault. I need to make it your fault. And yet, when you look at us, we look like the most responsible people on the planet. It's not true. It's another dichotomy. It is not true. I find myself today, and, I, and sometimes I beat on myself because I don't want to be responsible for my kids. I don't want to. And I keep thinking, you should be a better mother. You should be more concerned. I don't want to be. I don't want to be. I don't want to know what they're feeling because it's, it's hard for me to separate from my kids. But it's impossible with my mother. She is the hardest person in the world for me to separate from. And, I, and then I think to myself, why, why do you think that's so insane? You know, my first introduction to the planet Earth was inside that woman. Everything she felt, I felt. Everything she reacted to, I felt her reaction. And I still do at 40 years old. <laughs> That's just honesty, not rigorous honesty. Um, anyway, a couple of years ago, I had a little surgery, and my mom wanted to come up and be with me, and I said, I don't need to, Mom. It's just day surgery. I'm going to be okay. I don't need you here. You know, I'm a, I'm a lot more vulnerable, having been on anesthetic for a little while and back out, and I know those are not good times for my mom to be there because I'll, I'll let her get me. You know, I'll let her get me, and then I'll get her back. So it's better if she just doesn't come. But um, she showed up after several days and weeks of me saying, don't come. She came anyway. And I was furious. I was furious. She said, aren't you glad to see me? And I said, I'm not glad to see you. I just came because I loved you. I said, no, you didn't. You came because you needed to be here. You didn't come because you loved me. If you loved me, you would have respected what I asked you. She said, no, no, you don't understand. I came because I loved you. You know, and that's when I realized... She doesn't, she won't understand. She cannot understand. And that's not anything the matter with my mother. That's just the way my mother is. But you understand. It's not that I don't love her. I do love her. God knows I love her. But I've got to stay me. And the scariest thing in the world is this feeling that I get that I, I'm going to lose myself in somebody else again. When a newcomer comes in sometime into an Al-Anon meeting, I can tell how recovered I am by my reaction to a newcomer and their neediness. You know, they, need, they want to cling. 
and they want to hang on you. And, and when I start going, ooh, don't touch me, don't touch me, I'm not in a good place. I'm not feeling like me. I'm terrified that I'm going to soak into this other person again and they're going to soak into me. Um, I divorced the first one because somebody came along who said, you don't have to live like this and I love you. See, I think other people had said you don't have to live like this, but they hadn't added the magic words, you know, in the end. I interpreted I love you as I will take care of you. It never occurred to me until years in Al-Anon that I not only could, but I was responsible for taking care of myself. I think if you'll watch Al-Anons, you'll watch people get to that point where they have to make the decision. I'm either going to be responsible for myself or I'm not going to stay in Al-Anon anymore. People who do one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, and they're not doing the third step. They're doing one, two, twelve, one, two, twelve, one, two, twelve, and they're carrying the disease out there. They're not carrying the message. It's very difficult in Al-Anon to cross that third step barrier. It is very difficult. I don't know what happens in AA. My suspicion is a, a new drunk comes in and he says, this stuff is killing me and, I, and I'm, I'm willing to put it down. <clears throat> and the AAs go, great, come on in, we'll help you put that sucker down and we'll make it so that you never have to live drunk again. <laughs> Somebody comes into Al-Anon. <laughs> and we listen to that for a few minutes and we go, okay, enough. we all know the problem, hon. You don't have to keep telling us the problem. We understand the problem. Let's talk a little solution in here. And that's what we talk in our meetings. We talk solution. We don't talk problem. We all understand the problem. And you can mask the problem in a, in a million different ways, but it's all pretty much the same thing. If they don't do what it is I think they ought to do, what will happen to me? That's pretty much what it is, except we hang our very lives on that. It gets to be life-threatening to us. And at the end of our meeting, we don't say, you'll never have to touch that thing again. We say, go home, get in bed with him, hon, and love him. <laughs> oh, that's hard. <laughs> that's really hard. <gasps> and it's hard to cross that third-step line in Al-Anon. It is hard because you don't know what's going to happen next. And we've spent our whole life, it's predicated on guessing what's going to happen next. So you'll be prepared, don't you know? God forbid we're not prepared for something. Most people leave Al-Anon. The percentage of people who work through the steps is, is not very high. It's getting higher, but it's not very high. Um, when I did my first fourth step, I told that lady what happened to me the last time my the children's father, did what I called hitting me. And she said, honey, when somebody holds you repeatedly under a cabin cruiser in 20 feet of water, that's not called hitting, that's called attempted murder. But I have a disease called it's not that bad. You know? You have that thought that if anybody ever treated me like that, I'd never stay with them. If anybody ever said that to me, I wouldn't put up with it. And then it happens. It just happens. And the next morning you get up and you go, well, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. If I hadn't done what I did, he wouldn't have had to do what he did and we wouldn't be where we are. So I'm not going to do that again. It's that part in the big book where it talks about the alcoholic thinks if he just, you know, if you just drink on weekdays or if you just drink on weekends or if you only drink this or if you only... Well, we do the same thing. I, I won't do that anymore. I'll only do it on Tuesdays. I'll serve pork chops every night. I'll, uh, whatever. But it's that attempt to control. The line in the big book is, is lack of power. That was our dilemma. 
If an Al-Anon had written the big book, it would have said lack of control. That was our dilemma. And I don't know that there's much difference between those two words. The C word in our room. Uh, I married the man of my dreams. I had two children that my, uh, the children's father and I had adopted. Um, a little girl and a little boy. And I married this man of my dreams who came along. And um, we, we were married I don't know how long. And uh, uh, it was wonderful in the beginning, and then it quit being wonderful. I know today that God, this God that you have introduced me to has always worked in my life. I just didn't recognize it. I just didn't recognize it. He even sent me the exact kind of drunk I needed. If he'd sent me a drunk who didn't come home nights, who, came home, I mean, who did come home nights, who sat in his chair and got loaded, I'd probably still be home because I'd had somebody I could touch and feel and and um, I'd know where he was. But he sent me one who didn't come home nights. And that made me crazier than crazy. A lady called me at work one day and she said, uh, we know we owe you a lot of money. My husband's in a 12-step recovery program. He's an alcoholic. He gave me permission to tell you that. And in his recovery program, we'll have to pay you the money we owe, but I want you to know it's going to take a while. Now, in the depth of my disease, I will do anything. I will lie. I will cheat. I will steal to make you okay. And I heard that lady's pain, and I wanted to make her okay. So I lied. I said, I understand my husband drinks too much, too. The problem was not that my husband drank too much. The problem was that my husband didn't come home nights. I could stand the drinking. I just couldn't stand him not being there. We talk about abandonment. It's a nice big issue word, abandonment. And I had this wonderful sponsor who years ago used to talk to me about abandonment before we ever brought it up, before it ever uh, emerged in meetings. And she said, honey, the only thing you're afraid of, you're not afraid somebody else is going to leave you. You're afraid you're going to leave you. Because the bottom line is not this person is going to leave me. If this person leaves me, I'm left alone with me, and I'm not enough for me. And then what will happen to me? That's, what you're, that's the abandonment you're afraid of. You're afraid you're going to abandon yourself. And then what will happen? Which is always what she says to me. Ellen, I'll say, okay, this is the problem. And she says, okay, and then, well, what if that happens? Okay, well, what if that happens? Okay, well, what if that happens? And she walks me to the wall, you know, clear to the wall, until I know that if the worst thing that happens, could happen, happens, I'll be okay. No, I'll be okay. I won't like it. may hate it. may hurt but I'll be okay. In the depth of my pain, I, I had an alcoholic tell me one time, he said, I got good news and bad news. He says, uh, the good news is the pain isn't going to kill you. The bad news is the pain isn't going to kill you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Sometimes you just have to stand still and hurt. The greatest gift we give each other in an Al-Anon meeting is allow, allowing somebody to be in their pain and not have to fix them. You know, our fear is the pain is going to kill us. And I can't deal with the pain by myself. If you will sit next to me, though, don't tell me it's going to be okay. I don't need to know what's going to happen three weeks from now. I need to be right where I am, right this minute. I need to be allowed to hurt. And I don't want you to take any of the pain from me, but don't let me do it by myself. Just be with me. If you will know for me that I'll be okay, then I'll be okay. But it's like John loaned you loan to his God. That's what we do when we are able to sit with each other in our moments of pain. We're loaning each other our gods in action. 
that woman eventually dragged me into Al-Anon. I didn't know I was dealing with somebody who was uh, six months into the program, and we are dangerous, hun, when we're new here. Dangerous. We now have the answer, and it will work for anybody, by God, if we'll just get them here. So we take it out there, and we drag them in. God only knows how many people we have sent shrieking into the woods, you know, <laughs> witnessing for Al-Anon. <laughs> Um, and somehow I ended up in a nest of uh, winners. Winners are people who have lights on in their eyes. Winners, winners are people where if you turn down the sound and just watch the action, it's good action. That's what my, that's what my sponsor used to tell me about my alcoholic. I'd say, but he said, but he, but he said, but he said. She'd say, honey, turn off the sound and look at the picture. I don't care what he said, you know, his lips were moving. <laughs> That's not a good sign. <laughs> Turn off the sound and look at the picture. Watch the actions. Watch them. See if they can walk the walk. Talking the talk. Hey, man, we're slick at talking the talk. You know, we're good at that. We're all chameleons. You know, as I, I'm, I, I can remember as a little kid coming into a room and standing at the door and sizing up the situation so I'd know who to be when I went in there. And that's, if I can make you okay, I'm okay. So i got to guess what it is I think you want. That is so insane. Makes perfectly good sense, actually. Um, I came to my first Al-Anon meeting terrified that there was going to be somebody there who knew me. Because then they'd know, you know. Then they'd know that I couldn't make those people at home behave. And then they'd know that I wasn't okay. Oh, God, that was so scary. I mean, what are the chances in the city of Dallas of going into one of those millions of, of meetings and seeing somebody you know? Well, I'll tell you, in my uh, ten and a half years, almost 11 years of Al-Anon now, that has only happened maybe two or three times that there's been an earth person, a person that I would have considered an earth person, in the meeting with me. But, man, that very first meeting I went to, she was chairing the meeting. And when I walked in the room, she said, what are you doing here? And I went, you know, I don't belong. I never belonged any place. I never belonged any place. And that was the only reason I did my fourth step. Really, because I wanted to belong. And I had a feeling that to be a card-carrying Al-Anon, you had to do a fourth step. That sounded like that to me. So I wrote my fourth step uh, for the lady who was going to hear it. I edited it. I typed it and, and edited it and um, corrected it. So that just in case you want to check my spelling, <laughs> it'd be okay, you know. And it never occurred to me to tell her my deep dark. <laughs> that, you know, that's the kind of stuff you don't tell anybody. Why would I even consider telling her that? I'd probably been in Allen on somewhere between six months and a year when I did that first inventory, and, and I had no intention of telling her that. And I didn't. In retrospect, I realized that was God's grace one more time. Because the deep dark that I couldn't tell her about was what really got me into Allen on. I came into Al-Anon because I was powerless over alcohol. I realized that the reason I stay in Al-Anon is because thinking that I have control over people, places, things, and alcohol makes my life unmanageable. I stay in Al-Anon because of the unmanageability of my own life. What I didn't want to tell her was that what got me into Al-Anon was an affair I was having. I was married to the man of my dreams, and I was sleeping with my boss. She knew my boss. It would have been a, a pretty difficult place to put her in had I told her my deep dark with her with less than a year in the program and 
You know, sometimes God goes, no, this is really too much. <laughs> I'm going to draw the line right here. That's what got me here. I'd like to tell you I came here because my husband's because of my husband's unacceptable behavior, but that's not true. What got me here was my own unacceptable behavior. I had turned into a person I could not stand. I was doing things I said I'd never do. And I couldn't stand who I was. But I had spent my whole life adjusting my principles to meet the situation. It's not that bad. So I just adjust. There's a story I probably read at Reader's Digest, and I believe everything I read in Reader's Digest, about frogs that scientists put frogs in a, boil, a, a pan of boiling water and the frogs jumped out of the boiling water because they didn't want to turn into frog soup or whatever would happen to them if they stayed there. And then the scientists put the frogs in a pan of tepid water and they let them adjust to that. Then they put them on the stove and they turned the flame on real low and they let them adjust to that. And then they turned it up a little more and they let them readjust. And slowly but surely they, bo- they boiled to death. That's what happens to us. We adjust, and we readjust, and we maladjust. And you say, how did I get here? Did you wake up in those places where you said, God, how did I get here? This is not where I set out for. How did I get here? Today you've given me this incredible God who cannot do enough for me, who wants me to have everything, whose only joy is in my joy. And you know what keeps him from giving me everything I want? Me. Because <laughs> I think I know how it ought to be. You know? I think I know how that ought to happen. Um, when I'd been in uh, Alan on about three years, uh, we had a real bad time at my house, and uh, he was still drinking. Oh, God, yes, he was still drinking. Uh, it's a long story, but I don't know any short stories. Um, suffice it to say... We separated for the first time. What I discovered was that he was having an affair. And I had dealt with, at that point, the top part of the affair I had had. And what the realization of his affair brought to me was how he would feel if he knew what I had done. And I had to live on both sides of that, you know. Um, he, uh, he left. He separated. We separated, which is something we'd not ever done before. And, and after about a month, he called me one night and he said, Ellen, it's 11 o'clock at night and I'm in the bar and I'm not drunk. And I have $500 worth of pills. I don't know what they are, but I'm going to take them. I put a gun in my mouth this morning because of a bet I made that didn't go well. Can I come home? <laughs> Does that sound like I need you? <laughs> it sounded like I need you to me. And I knew my sponsor would just kill me, you know. I knew that you're supposed to let them twist out there and suffer the consequences of their own actions, you know. But I said, sure you can. And after a little bit, I turned myself into her. And you know what? <laughs> you know what she said to me? She said to me what she always says to me. And that was, honey, you just did perfectly. You just did perfectly. Of course he can come home. I called her one time and I said, you'll be happy to know that I have a question for you, but I already know what the answer is. <laughs> she said, well, what's the answer? I said, yes. <laughs> the answer is yes. <laughs> she said, have I ever told you no? Go ahead, think about that. No, she never tells me no. I'm the one that, that binds me to self. I'm the one who does that. My sponsor, and I've had three or four different sponsors in this program, so when I say my sponsor, that could be one of three or four different people. But their job with me has always been the same, and that has been to set me free. 
I finally know today what it is I want to be when I grow up. I want to be free. I want to be free. I want to be free to be who it is God would have me be. Um, New Year's Eve was uh, about two weeks after he came home, and on my way to bed that night, (laughs) geez, New Year's Eve was certainly delightful with someone who was not drinking at the time. (laughs) 10.30, we'll go to bed. (laughs) Walking to bed and I I touched this place in my chest where there had been some burning. For several months there had been some burning. But God, I was so focused on his behavior, I could not deal with this. I should have gone to the doctor in September for my annual checkup, but I couldn't go, you know, because I was focused on him. And uh, so I touched it, and there was a lump about the size of uh, Texas in there. Uh, my first thought was, I can't tell him because he won't be able to handle it. Isn't that an amazing thought? And that's three years in the program, but that's my disease. It's a long story. Of course it is. Um, there's no history of breast cancer in my family. When I take the little checklist that says you should be, you are, you are at risk for breast cancer, I have two positives out of you know, whatever the checklist is, 20 or 25 questions. One of them is that I'm female. <laughs> the other one is that I never gave birth because both of my children were adopted. There's no history of breast cancer in my family. I have discovered an amazing thing. Cancer is prevalent in alcoholic homes. There's a lot of cancer. A lot. If, we, if anyone ever did statistics, my suspicion is statistics would be awfully high in alcoholic homes. You know who uses the insurance first in an alcoholic family? It's not the alcoholic. It's the non-alcoholic. Alcoholics have it easy, if you ask me. They have moments of blackout when they don't have to deal with what's going on. You know, not us. We are stark raving sober a good deal of the time trying to make sanity out of total insane situations. But if anyone can do it, we can do it. You just try a little harder. Um, I had a year of cancer. I did a year of cancer. And the agreement I made with God was, okay, God, cancer is what you want to do. We'll do cancer. I'm doing it for a year. I'm not doing it any more than that. That's all I'm doing. In the hospital, uh, my husband... My sponsor's husband, my best friend in the program's husband, and another man that they decided should come with them came to our house the night my husband came home, and they 12-stepped him. I didn't ask him. My, my sponsor didn't send him. They just decided it was time to come. And he drank. He didn't drink for a couple of months. And he went to meetings. And his, they'd say, do you have a topic? And he'd say, yeah, how do you know you're an alcoholic? There were people there who announced themselves as court-appointed alcoholics. He announced himself as a wife-appointed alcoholic. Um, Thank you. Um, I went for a second opinion on the lump. It was the first time I had ever said to him, I cannot do this by myself. I'm scared. And he went with me. The next day he came home drunk, and he's still drunk as far as I know. But I'll tell you something, if drunk was the only way he could do that year, then I'm glad he did drunk. Because, you know, I did chemotherapy, and throwing up is not much of a team sport. It's not even much of a spectator sport. So if you're going to be passed out and drunk in the bed, it's probably the best way to be, you know. But at least I had somebody there. At least he was there. The biopsy report in the hospital was that if there were 100 women who had the same prognosis I did, in five years, 100 of them, out of 100 of them, 60 of them would be left and 40 of them would be dead. I had a 60-40 chance of living another five years. 
odd, quickly, I want to tell you, that was eight years ago she lived. <laughs> um, but I want to tell you that that recovery is um, your recovery. I had had enough Al-Anon to be open to feel the God of my understanding, finally, finally, to be able to hear him. I had had enough recovery to know that there's a part in the four-step inventory that says, and what was your part? It doesn't say there are some things in your life that you have a part in and some things you don't. (laughs) You have a part in everything that happens in your life. What was your part? I had become convinced that my job is to do the footwork. I used to get confused between God's job and God's work. I thought I was supposed to do God's job. But that's not what I'm supposed to do. That implies that I'm responsible for the outcome. And I am not responsible for the outcome. I am responsible for the footwork. Boy, is that a relief. That all I have to do is the footwork. So I did the one thing that I know, and that's the 12 steps. I worked the 12 steps on the time when the tumor was growing so I could get to what was my part. I am willing to do my part differently. And I cannot tell you that working the 12 steps is the reason I'm still alive today. But I will tell you that working the 12 steps is the reason that these eight years have been the best eight years of my life. I have a quality of life today that was not possible before. I don't believe I'd be alive today if it weren't for the 12 steps. I don't believe I would. I believe that would have been so terrifying to me that I would have died in fear. I think that would have happened. Um, if you've got to give up a body part, give up boob. It ain't a big deal. Um, the hardest thing to give up, however, is hair. Hair was a big deal. And it all fell out, except for the gray, of course, <laughs> which sort of looked like fried nerve endings that kind of blew around up there. And, and I lost all the hair on my body. Pal- I won't go into great deal- detail, just trust me. All the hair on my body was gone. One day that summer, I was standing at the back door. I had a husband who was back drinking again. Uh, he'd, he'd say, what's for dinner on Friday morning? And I might not see him again till Monday. I had two children, a 15-year-old and a 13-year-old. 15-year-old was the craziest person you've ever met in your life. And the 13-year-old was disappearing, disappearing. Um, I'd been given a 60-40 chance of living another five years. I was 20 pounds overweight from the steroids they give you during uh, chemo, which don't make you strong, hun. They just make you big. I was bald. It was pretty hopeless, you know. This is, if, if you're going to think about it's not that bad, this was bad, <laughs> you know. This was about as bad as I thought it could possibly get. I was leaving my house to go out one day, and I looked down and realized I was going to have to go back in and shave my legs. Then it dawned on me. I had lost all the hair on my body except under my arms and on my legs. And that was the moment I met God. That was the moment I saw the God of my understanding who was rolling around the floor of heaven, holding his side with tears streaming down his face, going, Oh, I have worked months on that. Do you get it, Alex? Isn't it funny? Uh, And all I could do was laugh. Because the fact was, it was as bad as I thought it ever could be, and it wasn't that bad. It not only wasn't that bad, it was, I was fine. I had learned that that how I am is not how I'll be next week or how I was last week. It's how I am right this second. And even when I was throwing up my toenails right that second, I was okay. Okay. You know, the fear isn't about what's going on right now. The fear is about the anticipation of what might happen. 
um, we divorced. And we divorced because my life changed. And my life changed because you had shown me a way to live that works in every situation in your life. And for the first time, I was not going with somebody, chasing after anybody, waiting for somebody, engaged to somebody, married to somebody, divorced from somebody, engaged to somebody, married to somebody, divorced from somebody. For the first time, there was not another body. In a series of of inventories, I discovered that since I was 12, there's always been somebody. And my addiction has been to this relationship. I had to have somebody or I didn't exist. There was a him and there was a us, but there was not a me. And I defined myself by this relationship, whether it was my relationship with a, a partner or a parent or a child or a boss or whatever, but that's how I defined myself. How are you? The kids are fine. How are you? He's sober and we're fine. That's how I defined myself. So who am I? Jeez, I don't want to know. I might not like her. I assure you, that I have never heard anyone in this program who has gone through the process of the steps, has gotten to the other end and said, geez, God made all these wonderful people in one little piece of poop. <laughs> I'm a pretty crummy person and I don't like me. I, have, I haven't heard that happen. I have not heard that happen. Two years later, uh, we discovered the problem with my crazy child. The school, school had her go do an assessment. And they said to me at the assessment, your child is an alcoholic. Yes! You know, the school was so surprised at my reaction. <laughs> Other people went, oh, no. No, she's not. And I went, oh, yes, she's an alcoholic. All right. I know what to do about alcoholism. You know? I don't know what to do about crazy, but alcoholism, I can handle. And when they're 17, you can make them do stuff that you can't make them do when they're older. So I offered her the only thing I knew about, and that was the 12 steps. I sent her to a place where uh, it was an uh, outpatient, and they gave her, they spoon-fed, they force-fed, they intravenously gave her the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. And she didn't drink for about a year. About a year and a half, she didn't drink. Um, that summer she graduated, and she moved out, which was good. She'd been trying to move since she was about 12. It was good. Um, then she wanted to come home. Uh, I had had reconstructive surgery the summer before. I have bought and paid for these, me and the insurance company. I did not do it because my life depended on it. I did it because I wanted to be the best me I could be. If you have never stood real close to $20,000, you might like to hug me when this is over. <laughs> Sharing is my life. <laughs> it's a wonderful thing to do. It really is. There's a guy at our club at home, and of course he's alcoholic, who's, you know, who will holler across the parking lot, Hey, get those $20,000 boobs over here. <laughs> sure. <laughs> here. <laughs> um, in the process of this surgery, I became aware that my, I was responsible for the serenity in my life. Nobody else is responsible for that. I am responsible for that. I am responsible to make sure that my needs get met. That is my responsibility. It's not anybody else's. And I knew that um, what I wanted more than anything else was peace of mind, although I used to think that you guys were shooting real low when I heard you praying for serenity. <laughs> Who wants serenity? No. I want ecstasy and bliss, you know. Well, it comes and goes. Um, so I made rules. 
You know, I had threatened to kick my kid out a lot of times and I'd never been able to go through with it. But I made rules about her moving back in and I said, if you can't do this, then you can't stay. Because I had come to the awareness that I could not live with active alcoholism. My reaction to active alcoholism is to have little malignant tumors. That's what I do. That's not about his disease. That's about my disease. That's what I do. So she couldn't keep the rules. Of course she couldn't. And I was forced to kick her out, which I did not want to do. I cried for three days. I did not want to kick my child out. I wanted my child happy and healthy and whole. That's how I wanted her. And she was dying. She was in slippery places with slippery people. And I could not save her. And it's a horrible feeling. It's an absolutely horrible feeling. I was leaving the morning she was supposed to move out for the Crested Butte Conference to be with 500 of my closest AA and Al Anon friends. And um, she came that morning and threw herself across my bed and announced that I was going to be a grandmother. Not that she was pregnant. Of course not. I am the responsible party. Even though the only thing that guy ever said to me was, like your car. <laughs> Could have been all he ever said to her. I don't know. Uh, all I know is she was the one who was having, having a baby. And I, and I was going to be the grandmother. And I thought that that changed everything. I thought that meant that now I was indeed responsible because that's mind-altering. See, she can do that to me too. You're the grandmother. You're responsible. And I cried for several hours and threw my wonderful program out the door. And then I finally did the one thing I didn't want to do, which was pick up the phone and call my sponsor because I just knew. You know how you get? You know, God's taken such good care of you to this point, but this is going to be the time he lets you down. You know, she'd always been so good to me, but this was the time she was going to say, yeah, you're responsible now. Now you've got to take care of her because it felt like if she stays here, I'll die. What my sponsor said was, do you want her to stay? And I said, no, and I feel terrible about that. She said, don't feel terrible. She's a grown girl. It's not your responsibility. I will stay on the phone while you tell her. And it quit hurting because the pain is not in the letting go. The pain is in the holding on. And when I was willing to let her go, it quit hurting. There's a difference between giving up and surrendering. Giving up is, <laughs> I don't care. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't want to try. Surrendering is, <laughs> I'm going to be in the best hands I could possibly be in. And the outcome will be as God would have it be. It was a difficult year for me and my daughter, but by Christmas time we'd made friends. And uh, I, had come to, I had come to another awareness. And that was that I love, God, I love babies. Gosh, I've always loved babies. I wanted a million kids, but God in his infinite wisdom said, I don't think you can handle that, hon. <laughs> I love babies. And my daughter was going to have a baby. So maybe I ought to decide this could be fun. Actually, what happened was a taper at a place where I was talking one time heard my pain. And he said, I need to tell you that um, our child has a baby out of wedlock. And he said, that child has brought us more joy. And I thought, Ellen, what are you denying yourself one more time? This could be good, you know. It just could be good. So by Christmas time, I was knitting blankets. Baby was due in April. Melissa called in December, and she said, I need to tell you something, Mom. I had a sonogram today. You know that blue blanket you're knitting? You're going to have to knit a whole lot faster. It's twin boys. My 18-year-old daughter was having twins, and she had every intention of raising them. A counselor, an angel. You know those people that you see in your life that show up at these incredible moments, and then you never see them again? An angel showed up at the hospital when the babies were born and said she was a counselor and she knew our story. And I don't know how she knew our story, but she said, you know, I've counseled a lot of adopted, a lot of girls to give up their babies. I've never been able to counsel an adopted child to give up a baby. 
She said, I think it's a decision they must make as a very small child that if they ever have a baby, they're never going to give it up. And if they don't have the tools to change that decision, they have to live it out. That's the process of our inventories. That's why we do inventories. So we can discover those old decisions we made and with great feeling make new decisions. And then with the help of the sixth and seventh step, have different lives. You know, nothing changed in my life up to the sixth step. Nothing had changed in my life. Melissa had never done the steps at depth. She wasn't capable. Um, I had uh, I told the nurses in the nursery, I said, I've never seen a newborn baby. Both of my children are adopted, and, and I've never seen a newborn baby. And, oh, God. See, when Melissa, Melissa spent the last month of her pregnancy in the hospital, and I would go to the hospital every day to see her, and, and when they'd come around to listen to the vital sounds of everybody in the bed, I'd stand at the door because Melissa didn't want me in the room when they were doing that, but I'd stand at the door and I'd listen. And they'd have to go hunt for my grandsons. You know, they were in there and they'd have to go hunt for them and I could hear their heartbeats. And I'd stand at the door and cry. Oh, God. I was so close. The magic of that was just awesome to me. You know, just awesome to me. They were already mine before they were born. If you've never been called mine by now and on, you do not know what you are missing. It is all pervasive. Um... They said, honey, when, when we're sure the babies are okay, you can come in. And when they were 10 minutes old, they tapped on the window and they said, come on, Grandma, come on in. Beverly B., who you heard last year, uh, one of my dearest friends on the planet, happened by the hospital that day. I don't know why she was there. It was three weeks before the babies were due, and she was just there. And she stood outside the window, and I cried, and she cried, and the babies, and I'd hold up a baby, and she'd cry, and and I'd cry, and I'd put that baby down, and I'd point to the other one, and she'd cry, and I'd cry, and it was awesome. I mean, it was just wonderful, you know? I had somebody to share the day with. I had somebody to share my joy with, which doubled it. And then she was not allowed a month later to be at the birth of her first grandchild because of our disease. She had, I had two that day. <laughs> one for me and one for her, you know? Um... We took the babies home because I had told Melissa, I will have better peace of mind knowing where you are than where you're not. And that's what I'm into is what do I need for my peace of mind. And um, I took the babies home. And when they were three weeks old, we took the babies home knowing that the smaller twin had some serious physical defects. They suspected fetal alcohol syndrome in the beginning. And that's not what it was. My daughter was sober during her pregnancy. The father was not sober. And I don't think we know in this next generation what um, some of these drugs are going to do to babies. But I think if you look at my smallest grandson, you might get an idea. Uh, one of the problems he had was a big hole in his heart, and at three weeks old he went into uh, heart failure. Melissa never abused those children, but she could not take care of them, and she didn't want to. She didn't want to. That's not a fault. She just didn't want to. But she didn't know what else to do. At five weeks, she said to me, Mom, I just can't do this. I just can't do it, and I'm going to have to give them up. And I said, well, maybe you can, but I don't know that I can because they're mine. They're mine. The sanity that's offered to me in second step is choices. I never knew before I got here that I have choices. I don't have to like any of the choices, but I do have choices. And I did a lot of talking, I did a lot of writing, and I did a lot of praying. And what I decided was that I didn't want to be those children's grand... I didn't want to be their mother. I'm, I'm through raising children. And these children are the children of two addicts. I don't like those odds. 
But my sponsor says that what God wants for me is what I want for me in my heart of hearts. I just don't know what that is. You know, Al-Anons are famous for somebody saying to you, well, where do you want to go to dinner? Oh, I don't care. Wherever you want to go is okay with me. Just don't leave me here. <laughs> Just let me go with you. I'll eat anything. <laughs> Boy, are we wishy-washy or what? Well, the fact of the matter is, we've erased so many lines that we don't know what we want. We literally don't know what we want. This process of recovery has been a process of me, I don't know that this is any better, but I've gone 180 degrees in the other direction. I know what I want today a good deal of the time, you know. I have opinions. Well, you know, maybe it'll even out. I don't know. Um, I knew in my heart of hearts what I wanted to be with their grandmother. See, you have given me the courage to dream my dreams. I didn't have the courage before that because I thought I was responsible for how they came out. And my sponsor said, no, sweetheart. No, 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 no. You do the footwork. How it comes out is God's deal. And God's promise to you is this or something better. And that's always the promise. This or something better. God gives the best to those who leave the choice to him or her. <laughs> Some days I don't need a male God. Thank you. Um, what I wanted more than anything was to be their grandmother. And um, my daughter signed papers and, and she moved out and let me have power of attorney. And I thought it would be a couple of weeks. It was a couple of months. Babies were five months old. But I went to adoption agencies and I said, I'm looking for somebody who wants two babies and a grandmother. We're coming as a package. You won't get one of us. You'll get all of us or you won't get any of us. You know, that's how we're coming. And I finally went to Lutheran Services after dragging, my, you know, dragging myself to a, a lot of places. And Lutheran Services, it was so easy, you know. You know when it's so easy that this is, God has just said, if you will just listen to me, hon, there is an, there is an easier way. They said, we know him. We know them. They just were approved last week. But we know them. In a year to the day, after uh, Melissa said, you're going to be a grandmother, my son and my daughter and I took our babies to Lutheran services and we handed them over to their new parents. They let me arrange that day. They let me have it the way I wanted it. And when it was over, they said, could we stand up and hold hands and say the Lord's Prayer? You know, I had this God who says, Ellen, I'm going to make it such a big sign, even you can't miss it. <laughs> God, sometimes I walk with my head down and I forget to look up, you know. It was the hardest day of my life. It was the hardest day. And if it were not for this program, I would never have lived through that day. The pain of what I thought it was going to be like would have been so great that I never would have gone through that day. I would be raising those children. And I'm not saying that grandparents who are raising their children shouldn't be doing that. That's what they need to do. That is not what I needed to do. My grandsons are four and a half years old. I had dinner with them Wednesday night. My grandson Tony said, Grandma, are you proud of me? He says, are you proud of me because I didn't bite? <laughs> a little jerk, you're not supposed to bite. <laughs> Well, I didn't have to tell him that. You know, I said, oh, I'm so proud of you. He said, and the, it, three times, Wednesday night, he said, are you proud of me? And the second time I said, I'm so proud of you because you mind your mom and dad. And your mom and dad love you so much. They only want what's best for you. And he said, Grandma, are you proud of me? I said, I'm so proud of you because you're the best 
Tony, I know. Nobody does Tony like you do, Tony. He didn't ask me again after that, you know. He didn't ask me again. Cameron is healthy today. For the first time, the doctor sees signs that the hole in his heart is closing. He's hyperactive as hell. I mean, he is like, like, you should pardon the term. I'm sorry, my mother, she will never hear this tape. I assure you, like a fart in the skin. Because <laughs> he's just everywhere, you know. He is just wound tighter than a drum. I have pictures that I will share with you happily afterwards. And um, one of the pictures is last Christmas Eve. Um, we always have Christmas at Grandma's house. And Ruby and Don bring the boys in, um, and we have Christmas. And Melissa's welcome to see the kids anytime she wants to. You know, she didn't want to see them very much, but one of the pictures that I have is Melissa last Christmas Eve rolling on the floor with the boys. I want to say something to the alcoholics. I cannot thank you enough for my daughter and for my daughter's life and for her sanity today. After the boys were born, Melissa got into I don't know what. I don't know what happened, and I don't want to know what happened. I know there were warrants out for her arrest in a good many of the counties surrounding Dallas. I know she did her own time in Lou Sterrett and in the Grand Prairie Jail and in the Plano Jail and in the Richardson Jail. I know. I know they locked her in solitary because she tried to kill herself in there. Um, she moved to Florida. I don't want to know what that's about, but she had to leave. And she came home, and, you know, I, I don't know. I know that the last night that my, my daughter drank, she was um, at my house. And um, I found her in the living room wrapped in a, in a mattress pad with a roll of toilet paper, and she was absolutely insane, absolutely insane, crying hysterically. And I said, can you just be quiet? I need to go to bed. I, I, have, to, I have to go to work in the morning. It was like water off a duck's back. And I don't know, you know, that was nothing I, I you know, it was nothing I did. You know, those, detachment is not something you do. It's just a gift that happens if you do the footwork. It just happens. The next day she called and did something I'll swear to you she'd never done before or since. And she apologized to me for her behavior the night before. And she said, I don't know why I do that. She said, I, I quit the drugs. But it's like, you know, there's a carafe of wine and I think I can have one drink. And the next thing I know, I don't know who I am. And the police are having to, to find the people I came with. They just go crazy. I don't know why that happens. And I said, Jesus, Melissa, of course you know why that happened. Well, I don't know what to do about it. Yeah, you do know what to do about it. Well, I don't know who to call. Yeah, 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 you know who to call. Boy, I don't have her number. I said, I have both of them, home and work. I had kept up with her little sponsor all those years. I loved her sponsor just to pieces. She was like having another child. And then I gave her Lisa's number and she called her. My daughter walked back into Alcoholics Anonymous two and a half years ago and I had nothing to do with it and you had everything to do with it because you didn't treat her like she was too young when she got here. And you didn't treat her like she didn't belong. Today they've given her a key to the club. I don't think they've ever seen her room. <laughs> she's had a tough year. and um, But she's got a job and she's buying her own car and she's enrolling in school Tuesday and it's her second semester. and. You know, Al-Anon's fall in love with people's potential, and my daughter is everything I dreamed she was and more. Everything I dreamed of and more. And we're working out a relationship today. I have a wonderful son. Several years ago, I know I have to quit, it's coming on. Several years ago, I decided that, that um, I wasn't going to date, and I'd like to tell you that I had to go out to the front step and go, no, no, boys, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not what happened. <laughs> I like to think it was my decision. <laughs> well, I can if I want to. Um, I made that decision because a lady uh, at a hospital where I was going to have a little touch-up surgery, 
And she said, are you single, married, or divorced? And I said, I'm single. You've never been married? Well, <laughs> yeah, I've been real married a couple of times. Well, then the only thing you can ever be is divorced. And she said, if, if, if you've been married, the only thing you can ever be is divorced. She said, you can only be single once in your life. And I said, well, yeah, <laughs> and this is it. <laughs> you know? I sort of did it backwards from the other one. And I realized that uh, the only way I was going to ever know who I was was separate. That was the only way I was going to ever know. And I am date. And then a friend of mine asked me out. And I, I had a long list. I had a list again, you know, of, of how he would be. Because I knew if I could have a him like this, then I could have the relationship I thought I ought to have. And he didn't match any of those things. And he doesn't match those things. He's not the list. So I was pretty safe to go out with him, don't you know? You know? <laughs> uh, and then he started doing some stuff like he, he's not in the program which was number one on the list. Well, actually, tied for number one was single and sober. <laughs> I, had a, I have a, a problem with married men there in my past. Um, he was single. And, uh, and he wasn't drinking when we first started dating for uh, dietary reasons. Uh, and he started drinking. And I called my sponsor and said, I don't think I, you know, he's drinking. I, I really shouldn't be with him. And she said, are you having a good time? Oh, <laughs> Well, yeah, <laughs> I am having a good time. Well, honey, <laughs> have a good time. <laughs> when it's not fun anymore, quit. <laughs> well, now, what a concept. <laughs> I thought you were supposed to decide that ahead of time, you know, <laughs> so you didn't have to get into the pain. You know. She says, Ellen, you've got to base your decisions on love, not on fear. You don't base your decisions on something because you're afraid of what else might happen. You, know? you base your decisions on... What would you love to do? Well, I'd love to have a good time. Yeah, I, I had a lady tell me the other day, I just don't know how to have a good time. Of course you know how to have a good time. Just quit being so afraid you don't know how to have a good time. <laughs> have a good time. And then I called her and I said, no, it's not fun anymore because I'm starting to care for him and I, I don't think I ought to be. She said, it sounds to me like you don't know whether you love him or you don't. Are you willing to go the rest of your life without knowing the answer to that question? Don't you just want to slap them sometimes? <laughs> reach through the phone and strangle that old woman. Okay. What I realized was I was, you know, I run away my whole life. My feet stay still. I look like a sticker, but I run away. And um, I said, okay, 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 I'll stay. I'll stay. And one day at a time for three, almost four years, I've stayed in that relationship, and I've been willing to be in a relationship whether he was or not. Um, two years ago, this this coming November, the day after Thanksgiving, for the very first time I told him I loved him and I didn't need him to tell me he loved me back. He had not said it to me. And I didn't, I wasn't saying it to get him to say that. I needed to tell him how I felt. This is very different from any way I ever performed before, let me tell you. A, um, a year ago, this coming day after Thanksgiving, for the very first time he told me he loved me. And uh, it was dearer and sweeter than anything I ever could have planned. Yeah. And the day after Thanksgiving this year, we're going to get married. He doesn't fit the list. But then I've limited God so many times with my lists, you know. He proposed to me in northern Montana, 20 miles from the Canadian border. I had no idea he was going to do that. And the minute he said, Elbow, will you marry me? 
the list started in my head. Yeah, but first you've got to do this, and you've got to do this, and you've got to do this. And I was going, <laughs> and he said, excuse me, was that a yes or a no? Because I'm making the list, you know. I looked out the window, and he had stopped the car under a yield sign. <laughs> okay, God, I get the joke. One more time, I get the joke, you know. My life isn't... My life isn't what I dreamed it would be. My life is perfect today. I have the best hair any human ever had. I don't own a brush. I wash it, and this is what happens. It's God's little rainbow. You know, it'll never, ha- it'll never be that bad again unless you decide you want it to be that bad again. You know. My kids are are uh, healthy and happy, as healthy and happy as they can be, and it's okay with me. However, they are today. It's okay with me. There's a person in my life who loves me and that I love more than I can tell you, and yet I know where I stop and who starts. Um, I used to think that when I died and went to heaven, God was going to say, pull out the VCR and the tape, and I want to see how her uh, family turned out. (laughs) And if they turned out to be fine, upstanding members of the community, she has done her job, and she can get into heaven. Because I thought that's how I would, that's how I judged myself, was how they were turning out. I thought that's how everybody judged me. But I don't think so today. I think when I die, when I get, this little body gets tired of doing whatever this little body's doing here, and, and you go to wherever it is you go when you're tired of doing this, this God of my understanding is going to greet me with open arms, because that's the way you greet me, <laughs> with open arms. And he's going to say to me what you say to me. Jeez, Ellen, where have you been? I've missed you. Do you know that heaven isn't complete without you? Do you know that there's an Ellen-sized hole in heaven? And when you're not here, it just didn't write. It's like that story one of the alcoholics tells about. He decided not to go to a meeting one night, and his sponsor said the next morning, you missed it. What did I miss? Well, you missed whatever it was you were supposed to hear last night at that meeting. Well, what was it I was supposed to hear? Well, I don't know. I heard what I was supposed to hear, but you weren't there to hear what you were supposed to hear. You know, I used to think I was going to wake up dead, and God was going to go, Shh, you missed it. You were so close, hon, you missed it. <laughs> That's not what he's going to say. Because I, I know today how, I, how God's going to judge my life because it's how I judge my life today. The first thing God's going to say is, did you have a good time? Did you have a good time, hon? You know, that was the whole point of that place, was to have a good time. And I want to be able to say, oh, yes, I had a wonderful time, God. Thank you for asking me to the party. I'm so grateful for being invited to the party. I'm so grateful. Some days I'm more grateful than others. Today I'm really grateful that I'm at the party. And I'm so grateful that you're the people at this party with me because nobody knows how to have a better time than you do. We have a good time. God's going to say, you know, I knew you loved babies, so I put lots and lots of babies in your life, and I hope you loved every one of them. The children's father has not been involved with the twins because he said it's too painful to let them go. But... See, I know today that if you're afraid of the pain, you'll always be in pain. You'll always stand on the edge. You'll never walk through it. The scary part is walking through it. I don't ever have to walk through it alone again, ever again. And as long as you are there with me, I'm not afraid of the dark. I'm only afraid of the dark when I think I'm by myself. And then God's going to say, Ellen, hon, did you get the joke? And I don't know what your joke is. Your joke may be different than mine. But my joke is, I concentrated so hard on not knowing how bad it was 
but I missed how wonderful it was. Today I'm not afraid of how bad it is, and I get to enjoy the moments of how full of wonder it is. That's the gift you've given me. I love you, and I thank you.